Well, good morning, good morning. It's so good to see you here today at the Lord's house. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Open up to the book of Jonah. We started this new series last Sunday, and you saw this video right beforehand. It's Grace Beneath the Waves. And if you weren't here last Sunday, let me just encourage you to go back on iTunes or check it out online. You can watch that message and see Jonah 1 where we saw the, the heartbeat of us as humans is to run from God, but the heartbeat of the Lord is for him to faithfully pursue us in his love and his mercy. And so we're going to continue with that theme going into to chapter 2. And I, last week, if you were here, you heard me give a one-sentence kind of synopsis, an overview of the book of Jonah. If you want to boil down these four chapters in just one sentence, it's that a reckless God, or a relentless God, pursues a reckless people through a reluctant missionary. A relentless God pursues a reckless people through a reluctant missionary. That's the entire book of Jonah in one sentence. God in his relentless mercy and love and kindness and grace pursues us, a reckless people, through a reluctant missionary, the missionary of Jonah in this book. So we're going to be in chapter 2. If you don't know where Jonah is, I know it's hard to find. You can go to the front, the table of contents, look there. There's no shame in that game. If you don't know where it is, it's hard. It's a small book. But uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll go through the last couple of chapters and walk through it and see what God's word has to say to us on this picture of grace beneath the waves. All right, last week, Jonah got on the ship to run from God, ended up overboard, swallowed up by fish. We walked through all that stuff. And so today, he's in the belly of the fish, and he's crying out to God. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2 to see what God's word says. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the grave, or the pit, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet... Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounding me, weeds, probably seaweed, were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. That's the, the pit of the earth, the bottom of this ocean. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, anybody relate to that? When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed to pay, I will. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we pray now, first thanking you that you hear us when we pray. When we are in distress, when we are fainting and worn out and exhausted, Lord, when we are in just outright rebellion against you, 
Lord, if we will stop and pray to you, you promise to hear us. God, thank you for Jonah 2 and how it reminds us of the hope we have in your steadfast love. And Lord, I ask that today that our response would be one of thanksgiving and sacrifice. May our joy rest in knowing that salvation belongs to you. For not by works are we saved, but by you, Lord, in your great grace, we receive salvation. Take a moment right now and ask, no matter where you are in your spiritual walk with the Lord, whether you're far from him or near him or you don't know him, don't believe in him, just for a moment, take a step of faith and just say, in this moment of silence, God, would you speak to me today? Would you pray and ask God to speak to you now? And now would you pray for me as we look at God's grace and his mercy that I would be able to unpack this beautiful truth in a beautiful way. Would you pray for me in the silence? Lord Jesus, would you speak today? We desperately need your spirit to change our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that you would exchange our sin for your glory and your greatness today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, um, I guess 10, 12 years ago now, I was working here in the Charlotte area at a church, but I was going to seminary up at Southeastern Seminary, which is up in the Wake Forest, Raleigh area. And so literally one day a week, I would drive up with a group of guys, and then we turn around and we drive back the same day. So that means for three years, once a week, I was going up and going back. I knew all the speed traps. I, I knew where all the cops sat. Like I just, I knew 85, like the back of my hand. I knew the back roads. If there's a wreck, this is how we get off and get back on the interstate. Like you do that for three years, you just learn it. You just know it. Well, one day, one of the guys, I guess, had shown up late for us to leave early in the morning to make it up there for our 9 o'clock class. And so we were running a little bit behind. So we get going up there, and we're getting close to the seminary. We're like a mile away from the school. But I know, because I've done it so many times, you, you go down this hill, hill, and then up, and the seminary is right there. Well, going down the hill, they have a speed limit sign, 35 miles an hour. But it's hard to keep it at 35 miles an hour when you're going downhill, right? And we're late. And so we're going down this hill, and one of the guys was like, hey, dude, you better slow down because, like, it's 35 through here. And I was going 47. I was. I was going 47 miles an hour. And some of you are like, man, that's pretty amazing that years later he can remember how fast he was going. And I could, and the reason why is because there was one of those uh, radar speed detectors on the side of the road right there. And uh, it's telling me what the speed limit is, big bold letter, like 35 miles an hour. And underneath that, it's got 47 flashing. Like, it's flashing. You're going 47, and it's a 35. And the guy's like, slow down. And I'm like, dude, we don't have time. We're running late for class. And so I pass by that sign going 47 miles an hour. And out of the corner of my eye, I see that there's a cop behind that sign. And he pulls out right behind me, right? And at this moment, you're like, what do you say? What do you say? You know, like the cop doesn't even have to come up to the window and say, excuse me, sir, do you know how fast you were going? Yes, I know how fast I was going. It was blinking on the sign as I drove past it, right? Like I knew the law and I was like, I'm not going to obey it in that moment. 
And so literally, he, he, I'll pull over, he comes up, and he doesn't ask that question. He just says, license and registration. He gets all that stuff, and he goes back to his car, and he runs everything. And the guys in the car are like, dude, you're so getting a ticket. Like, you're definitely getting a ticket. You, you, you knew the law. You broke it. I'm texting my wife. I'm like, we're up here. We made it, but I'm behind a, or a cop's behind me right now. I'm getting a ticket. Like, I've just said, I'm getting a ticket. I know, right? The cop comes back up to the window, hands me my license back, and he says, hey, I'm going to let you go with a warning today. And I'm like, what? Like, I knew the law, and I still chose to break the law, and yet he gave me grace in that moment. And that was years ago, and I haven't forgot it, because when you experience grace like that, you never forget it. And I tell you all of that because that's where we are in Jonah 2 today. Jonah 1 has seen what God has told him to, to do. He knows I need to go to Nineveh. I need to tell these people about the love of God for them and how they can be forgiven. And he's like, nope, I see the law. I know the law. I'm not doing it. I'm going the exact opposite direction. And he runs away from God. But God pursues him in his grace. He doesn't bring his wrath on Jonah because if he did, he would have just killed Jonah and used another prophet. But he doesn't. Instead, he brings a storm and he brings this fish into Jonah's life in order to not pay him back, but to bring him back. And so Jonah chapter 2, though Jonah chapter 1 was all about his rebellion, chapter 2 is all about God's grace and his mercy. So I want us to see that as we walk through this passage, the beauty of God's grace to look at us and say, yeah, I see how you've ran and you've rebelled but I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you grace beneath the waves. And one of the greatest ways that God gives you and I grace is by hearing our prayers. By hearing our prayers. You see, when we have made a mess of our lives, God still hears our prayers. Look at Jonah's life. He has made a mess of it. He has no one to blame but himself for this moment. His rebellion and his sin from God has led him to this point where God is disciplining him and bringing him back in his goodness and his grace. But Jonah's situation, I mean, it's a mess right now. We might be familiar with it, but just put yourself in this moment just for a little bit. Jonah is in the belly of a fish. Fish, I mean, he's got fish guts around him. He's got seaweed on his head. And don't let the cartoons that you've seen fool you where these cartoons of Jonah in this belly of the well, it's like big enough where my house could fit inside that, that fish. That's not how it really was, right? Like this is tight and compact. Like Jonah is not moving. He's constricted in this moment. And this moment gives a whole new meaning to the Bible verse, be still and know that I'm God. <laughs> okay? Like Jonah's not moving. Like he's in there and he's stuck in this moment. And this is where he is. Like this is a terrible moment. And there's not much hope that it's going to get better. I don't know about you. Maybe you've studied this and you know, but... I, I don't think the swim classes were that great in Jerusalem at this time. Like, I don't think Jonah was a great, a great swimmer in this moment. So even if Jonah can get out of the fish, he's still underneath the water. and He's still got to swim up to the top, and maybe there's a boat there to get him, right? Like, this is a bad, messy moment that Jonah is in. And it's because he's running away from God. Now, the very thing that led Jonah to this moment is the very thing that is keeping Jonah in this moment. His pride and his rebellion from God. I mean, look back in, in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. All right, now look at chapter 2, which we read earlier, and the first word, then. Think about this for a second. He's been there for three days and three nights, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord. I would make it like three minutes, three seconds maybe. You know, like, I'm here, I've got to get out, God, like, you've got to help me. But something within Jonah saying, nope, maybe I can still figure this out. Or nope, maybe I should just die here. But he sits there for three days and three nights, but then he repents and he turns to the grace of God and he calls out to him and prays. And notice in verse 1, there's another small word, but a key word to this. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, his God. That verse could have said, Jonah prayed to the Lord, the God of creation, from the belly of fish, and God heard him. It could have said that, right? It would have made sense. It would have been true. But Jonah in the moment is, is wanting to highlight something that I don't want us to miss today. Some of you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you are running from him right now, just like Jonah is. And you need to hear this morning that God is still your God. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. In this moment, you can still pray to him because he is still your God. Some of you need to pray to him because he is your God. He has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. He didn't abandon Jonah in the midst of his rebellion, and he's not going to abandon you. He is the Lord, his God. And this God is a very loving, gracious God that he hears the prayers of Jonah. Now in verse 2, it says, Jonah, I, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now this answer me and heard my voice, these are two different things. It could have said, you answered me. God could have sent a messenger. He could have sent an angel, somebody to interact with Jonah. Hey, God could have said, hey, send an angel down, talk to Jonah through this fish, find out what he's thinking, what's going on, then come back up here and tell me about it. But that's not what God does. God in this moment hears his voice. He didn't just answer him. He heard his cry. He heard his plea. God hears our cries and our pleas too. And some of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, but I've created this mess in my life. There's no way that, that God is going to hear me when I'm the one that created this. True, you might have created all the mess in your life. But you need to hear that God is still faithful in his grace and in his mercy to hear your prayers. If you're sitting here thinking, no way does God hear my prayers because of the way that I've rebelled against him. No way does God hear my prayers because I've made my life a mess. Jonah could have said the same thing. Jonah is in the situation he's in because of his mistakes and his sin and his rebellion. And yet God still hears his prayers. He's still showing him grace beneath the waves. We rarely show this kind of grace in our life, and we hardly ever experience this kind of grace in our lives. Just a couple weeks ago, one of my kids was doing something silly, I don't know what it was, jumping on the bed or something like that, and I went in there and I said, hey, you can't Hold on, for those of you that don't know me, my kids are nine, six, and three. Let me just set that out there. So it's not like my 18-year-old was jumping on the bed. 
nine, six, and three. One of them is jumping on the bed, right? And so I went in there. I was like, hey, don't do that. Don't jump on the bed. And they're like, okay, Dad, okay, okay. And then I leave, and I, and I go into the room, and one, two minutes pass by, and I hear like a thump, uh, and then tears and crying. And so I go back in the room, and I'm like, what happened? And they're like, what? you told me not to jump on the bed. And so I was jumping on the bed, and I fell off, and I got hurt. And in that moment, I was like, well, you'll get no sympathy from me. And uh, I, I told you. Like, I told you so, right? Like, that's our natural response. I told you so. Don't do it. And you did it. Now you're hurt. No sympathy from me. And that's a confession in this moment, okay? That's not me reflecting my Heavenly Father well, right? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so in the midst of this moment, I wasn't reflecting God well. And I'm thankful that our God's not like that. Because God in this moment could have looked at Jonah and been like, Jonah, I told you so. I told you to do this, and you didn't do this, and so your life is a mess right now. It's your fault. It's your fault, Jonah. But the grace of God doesn't do that. I mean, Jonah waited three days and three nights before he prayed to God. God could say, hey, Jonah, I hear your prayers. Mm, I'm going to wait three days and three nights to answer you just like you did to me. Like God could have done that. But God in his grace doesn't do that. God does not reflect us in our told-you-so moments. God is a gracious, kind, and loving God. And this is so important for us to see and understand. But because, because God does not hear Jonah's prayer, because Jonah was good, or Jonah was this amazing, perfectly righteous man, God doesn't hear Jonah's prayer in this moment because he's doing everything right. God hears Jonah's prayer and our prayers. Not because we're good, but because he's good. God hears our prayers not because we do everything perfect and right, but because he is gracious and merciful and mighty to hear our prayers. And he desires for us to pray to, uh, to him. We need to hear it. It's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that our prayers are heard. It's only by his mercy that he extends to us this right for us to pray to the king of all creation. The one who formed us and made us. The one who holds everything together right now. We can pray to that God because of his grace and his mercy. So even when our life is a mess, God doesn't hear our prayers because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Jesus is so good and faithful to stand in our stead in order for us to pray. He is our mediator that we can pray and know that we are heard. You see, what they see in this moment is just a, a glimpse of what the New Testament sees and understands about how Christ has paved the way for us to be heard. We see this ultimate picture of God's grace that he would leave his perfect throne to come to us, not just to hear our prayers, but to act on our prayers. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, the word of the Lord says this, highlighting God's grace and our ability to be able to come to him. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace, the throne of grace with confidence. We can pray to God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4 is highlighting that Christ is on this throne of grace. And because it's a throne of grace, we can come to him in confidence. What this is showing us here is that we do not deserve to come before him. But it's by his grace that we can come before him. And not with shame and guilt, but with confidence we come before the Lord. Even in our mess, we can come before him. 
Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jonah is in a deep time of need and he calls out to the Lord and God extends grace. We are in a deep time of need. We call out to the Lord and he extends grace to us. My question I would ask you today is, is prayer a last resort for you or a first response? Is prayer a last resort for you or the first response? You see, God desires for us to come to him in our prayers, even with our mess. He desires for us to do that. And yet we think, I've got this, I'll hold on to this, I'm going to be able to fix all these things. And when it finally spins out of control and we can't do it, then as a last resort, we come to God. That's what Jonah does in this moment, right? I'd rather stick it out here three days and three nights and hope I die. And when I'm not, then finally, finally as a last resort, when I've tried everything, then I'll pray to God. Church, please do not let prayer be a last resort for your life. Please, I beg of you, do not let prayer be a last resort for this church or this nation. We can't say, well, hopefully we'll fix it. I'll try to fix it or this political party will fix it or this person in power will fix it. Oh, when they can't, then we'll pray. God has made a way through this cross, his death, his resurrection, for us to come before him to this throne of grace and be heard. For our deepest needs, come to him. He says, cast all of your cares upon me, for I care for you. This is God's grace to you and to me. This is God's grace to Jonah in this moment. May we come to God in our prayers as our first response. Because I believe what the old hymn says is so true. What peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We often forfeit our peace because we let prayer be our last, res- last resort. We often needlessly bear the weight of our anxiety and our shame because prayer is a last resort for us. We need to carry everything to the Lord in prayer. And by His grace, no matter where we are, emotionally, no matter where we are, spiritually, God will hear our prayers because of His grace. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. This is God's grace to us today. But we also find God's grace when we stand guilty before him. The second thing is this. We find we stand guilty before God, but God extends his saving grace to us. You see, if you look at Jonah's life and his mess, there's no doubts that he's guilty. All you have to do is go back to chapter 1. If this was a trial, you'd be like, did you, did you disobey here? Did you break the law here? Did you do this? Yes, yes, yes. Guilty. Done. Chapter 1's already said it. You're guilty. Then he comes into chapter 2 and we see this grace that God extends him, this saving grace that God extends him, even in the midst of his sin and his rebellion. And there's something mysteriously beautiful about Jonah's prayer. If we read it too quickly, we might miss it, but in verse 4 and then again in verse 7, Jonah talks about this holy temple. Did you see that? He says, yet again, I shall look upon your holy temple in verse 4. And then in verse 7, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. That's mysteriously 
odd in this moment. Like, what? What are you talking about a temple? Like, you're in the middle of the ocean in a fish, and you're talking about a temple that's hundreds and hundreds of miles away in the city of Jerusalem? Like, what are you talking about right now, Jonah? Like, why doesn't your prayer look different than this? Why do you keep talking about the temple in here? Because as he looked to the temple and thought about the temple of God, he was reminded of his guilt at the same time he was reminded of God's grace. You see, the temple in Jerusalem is where people would come and they would worship the Lord. And in this temple, in the middle of it, in the center of it, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And in the center of the Holy of Holies was this box called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the center of the Ark of the Covenant was the commands of God. The commands of God were commands that we have all failed at. We couldn't live up to it. We continued to break it. People would come there to worship. They would remember the commands of God are there in the center. And we do not keep those commands. But on top of those commands of God was this thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And once a year, they would offer a sacrifice. The sacrifice of an innocent lamb there on top of the mercy seat. Not because they thought that that was going to remove all their sin, but they knew it was a sense of atonement, that it would cover their sin. They knew that it was just a picture of something that would be to come, something much greater that would be to come. So Jonah's sitting here thinking about how he's broken the commands of God. And at the same time, he looks there and he remembers the mercy seat. And how something innocent has stand, stood in the place of something that was guilty. So that those sins could be taken away. This is God's grace. This is just a shadow. What happened at the temple is just a shadow of what would ultimately happen in Christ. The substance of that. The one who is truly innocent, committed no wrongs, lived the perfect life, died on a cross, a, a criminal's death, when he had broke no crimes, broke no laws. And Jesus did that. And what's beautiful, and why I say it's mysteriously beautiful, is in the, in the New Testament it highlights this truth. That Jesus is the ultimate picture of that lamb that was shed at the mercy seat. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, Jesus is the propitiation. That literally is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the same language that they used in the temple of this mercy seat. Jesus is the full picture of the mercy seat that's there. Romans chapter 3 takes the same kind of language and it highlights it clearly for us. Our guilt but also God's grace. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are justified by what? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who God put forth as a propitiation, a atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This is beautiful. In this moment, in this mess of Jonah, he needs salvation. He looks to the temple and he's like, I know of my guilt and my shame. God, I know of your grace and your mercy. And I'm asking you right now through this prayer, would you give me grace and mercy in this moment? You see, his sin had placed him where he is, and he needs that gracious forgiveness. The book of Jeremiah talks about how the people at that time, and even today, commit two great evils. 
And the language it uses is they've committed one evil. They have forsaken me, speaking of God, the fountain of living waters. And they have made broken cisterns that can hold no water. These cisterns that they would try to store up water that would quench their thirst, they're broken and the water just drips out the side. But it says that God is the fountain of living waters. Living waters means that white water rapids coming down from the mountains, endless flow. Saying people are hungry and they're thirsty. And God is the only thing that's going to satisfy them and bring to them the salvation that we so desperately need. And yet, many of us know that truth, and we still stand over here and we try to make these broken cisterns, hoping that they will satisfy us, hoping they will fulfill us. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. You see, in verse 8, it talks about it like this. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. These broken cisterns cannot satisfy us. They're vain idols. We can chase after a job. We can work and exercise so hard for our health. But one day our job will lead us to retirement. And one day our health will fail us. But God has a steadfast love that never fails. Never fails. And some of you have heard this truth before. Some of you say, yeah, I know all about it. But there's a difference between knowing that God is a fountain of living water. There's another thing to embrace that truth that God is the fountain of living waters. It'd be like this. If we went on a hike um, through Stone Mountain and we're getting hot one day and uh, we see a waterfall in the distance, right? And we're like, gosh, it's so hot. It's so humid like it's been here. It'd be great to have some refreshing water. We're out of water to drink. And you see a waterfall, something like this at the distance, and you're like, Man, that is so beautiful. That would be refreshing. That could cool me down. That could give me something to drink. That would be fantastic. But then you turn and you're like, let's keep walking. Let's keep going on our hike. You see, that water is not going to satisfy you until you stand underneath it, until you drink it. And some of you have known this truth and you've been running from God. God, you're this rushing water, the fountain of living waters, and yet you know it and you look at it and you refuse to go to it. You refuse to let that wash over you and cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. To satisfy your deepest droughts of your heart. God's word says, come to me. My grace, I will receive you. And we need this so much. And verse 8 tells us why. We need this because we are all hoping for some steadfast love and if we pursue these idols and all these other things, we will continue to be thirsty. We'll continue to never have hope. But God promises us hope in his steadfast love. We need this so much. In a world that is continually changing, I mean, every night you turn on the TV and it's like the world is just spinning out of control. Every day you wake up in the morning and you're just like, oh my goodness, like what is wrong with my body? Why is it not working the way it's supposed to be? Or there's an internal emotion that you're struggling with. We see it day after day and, and ultimately we're longing for this steadfast hope in the Lord. Something that is solid, something that is permanent, something that's not changing with the days and the weather. And God says, you're longing for that? You're looking for that kind of love? You're only going to find it in me. 
But if you continue to search for it in all these areas, all these vain idols, then what you're doing is you're forsaking, you're forfeiting the hope that your heart desires for that steadfast, stable, permanent love that only God can give us. That only God can give us. And in his gracious, kind, steadfast love, he extends to us salvation. That's where Jonah moves. In verse 8, he's saying there's hope in the steadfast love. And where this steadfast love leads us is thanksgiving, verse 9 says. Where we'll sacrifice to the Lord. That's backwards, right? So often we're like, sacrifice? Oh, that's drudgery. Like, you got to sacrifice something? Jonah's like, no, God, I look at what you're calling me to do and what you're asking me to do now. And with thanksgiving, with delight, I will do what you've called me to do. Not duty, but delight, I will sacrifice to you. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. I hope that that encourages every one of us today. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Listen to me. Salvation, listen, salvation does not belong to your works. It doesn't belong to you. Those of you that have this Western mindset of karma, where if I am good enough, then I'll tip the scales and salvation will come my way. But if I did something bad, then maybe next, next day I'll have to work it out again to equalize that karma. That is not what the gospel is. That's not what grace is. Salvation does not belong to you and how hard you can work. Be comforted into that. You're saved by works. It's just not your works. It's the works of Christ. So be encouraged by that truth. Salvation belongs to him. And for those of you that know that truth, be encouraged to share that truth. Salvation doesn't belong to you. You don't hold on to that and say, well, I'm glad I got Jesus. The whole rest of the world doesn't need it. I don't want to share it with them. They want to reject it. Hey, it's not your role to say salvation belongs to me. It belongs to the Lord. You have to share that good news of salvation with others. That was the problem with Jonah. He's like, no, God, I know that you're faithful, and I know that you're merciful, and I know that you're gracious. You're going to save these people, and I don't want you to save them. This is Jonah's racism coming out in this moment that we'll see in the next couple weeks. But he gets to this point of repentance, and he's like, God, salvation belongs to you. You save who you want to save. I'm going to be faithful to share it with everyone. I'm going to share it with everyone. And so if someone doesn't believe, it's not against you because salvation doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. Be encouraged by that truth. Be encouraged by the grace of God. Because this salvation comes and it belongs to the Lord and he extends it. To who? In the book of Jonah, we see salvation comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. You're like, where, where do you see that, Ryan? <laughs> Think about Jonah. Jonah's the prophet. He's the one that's supposed to know God's word. He's memorized God's word. He's the person supposed to be the spokesman of God. And yet he's the one that's rebelling and running and sinning against God. And salvation comes to him and he praises God for it. Next chapter we're going to see next Sunday, the gospel of salvation goes to Nineveh. These reckless, ruthless people that are running away from God, these irreligious people, and God saves them. No matter what camp you would put yourself in or your friends or your family, salvation comes to them both, the religious and the irreligious. Because salvation belongs to the Lord and Him alone. So listen to me, you do not have to clean yourself up to come to God. You just have to admit you're dirty. You just have to admit you're dirty. 
And that's what's happening in this moment. Jonah, in this prayer to God, he's, he's not trying to justify himself in any, any verse in this whole thing. He doesn't try to make himself righteous before the Lord. He doesn't give his list of excuses. God, let me give you ten reasons why I should not go to Nineveh. One, you know, you could use somebody else. Two, I'm not a great speaker. Three, like he doesn't go through that list. He could have. But that's not what repentance looks like. And that's not the road that leads you to salvation. You see, you cannot truly repent and defend yourself at the same time. Some of you have heard the grace of God and heard the gospel message, and you still try to justify yourself before God. I'm not that bad. You're even thinking right now, I'm way better than the person sitting beside me, right? We justify ourselves. But true repentance, the one that leads to salvation like Jonah experienced, it doesn't come by justifying ourselves and trying to defend ourselves. We cannot truly repent and defend ourselves at the same time. We have to repent. Some of you think, Ryan, I can't, I can't truly repent because I have nothing to offer God. Good. That's what grace is all about. You have nothing to offer God. And as soon as you admit that, then you'll receive salvation from God. Think about it. The thief on the cross that hung and died. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What did that thief have to give to Jesus? Nothing in that moment. Everybody would have looked around and been like, dude, that guy's done for. Like, he's on his deathbed. He's dying. He's lived a reprobate life. There's nothing that this guy has to give to have salvation. There's no way he can tip the scales back in karma right now. Like, he's done. And Jesus, in that moment, hanging on the cross, doesn't look at the man and be like, sorry, you're not going to make it. No, Jesus' response is, today you will be with me in paradise. Because our God is a gracious God, extending salvation. So if you think, man, I am way too far gone then you don't understand the depths of God's grace and his mercy. John Newton, some of you may know him, but you see a picture of him. He's got this sweet wig on. It's pretty amazing right there. Born in the 1700s. And John Newton was known for um, several things, not great things when he was younger. But uh, he grew up with a good, loving Christian mom and then a reprobate dad who was basically a drunken sailor. His, John Newton's mom died when he was young. And so he just followed in line in the footsteps of his dad. He lived this reprobate, drunken sailor life. And one of the things he was known for when he was younger is that he could cuss for two hours straight without repeating himself. I don't even know how it's possible, but literally that was his reputation. He could cuss for two hours straight without repeating himself. And nobody liked him. He was a sailor and they took a trip down to Africa one day and I don't know exactly how this happened, but I'm guessing the crew was like, hey, guys, we told Jonah to be back here at 4. Everybody be back here at 3. Not Jonah, I'm sorry, John. John will be back here at 4. We're going to leave at 3. So just be back here early, and we're going we're to sail off without John. And so that's what they did. John got left in Africa. He became a captive and a slave. He was beaten and tortured. He was required to eat his dinner like a dog. He couldn't use his hands. He had to get down on his knees, put his hands down, and eat out of a bowl with his mouth. And you would think in that moment, maybe that would humble John. But what we find is that he gets, gets free, gets back to England. When he gets back there, you don't find a humble man. You find anger and bitterness and resentment. He gave his life to slave trade. He's like, you know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? I'm going to help break up families. 
And he did this terrible, horrendous act of selling humans into slavery. He had lived it. He had seen how brutal it was. And he's like, yep, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to put people under that pipeline. I mean, he had a terrible reputation. A man that everybody would look at and be like, he is way too far gone. When he started this, doing the slave trade stuff again, he fell off the boat because he got so drunk one night. People were, I guess, a little kind. They decided to take a spear and stab it through him off the boat and bring him back in. I mean, this is what they did. This is John's life. I mean, this is a terrible life. We're like, this guy is, is, is a, just a reprobate. There's no hope of salvation for this man. But then one day, God brings a storm into John's life. He brings a storm into it. And it was so bad, they're out sailing, and the ship is about to fall apart. It's about to break apart. And John does something that he hadn't done since his mom had died. He prayed to God. And it wasn't some fancy, elegant prayer. He just said, God, help me. It was God's grace in the midst of his rebellion to hear his prayer. So God answered John's prayer. He answered it by literally taking everything from John's life. He lost his job. The few friends he had abandoned him. So I believe John one night was just eating at a restaurant by himself. And people came up to talk to John. And they invited him to come to a gathering just like this, like we're in right now. To hear about Jesus and the grace that Jesus extends to even the worst of sinners. And John didn't have anything else to do, so he's like, I guess I'll come. So he goes to the church, and after hearing several weeks of this love of God and the grace of God and the salvation of God offered to even the worst of sinners, John believes in Christ and is saved. And is saved. The last half of John's life, he's known for, for several things. But one thing he's known for is working to abolish the slave trade in the UK. He worked with William, William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, and without a civil war, they ended the slave trade in the UK. And that's what he was known for after Christ redeemed him and saved him. He was also known for being a loving, gracious pastor. This man, who could talk for two hours and not repeat himself cussing, now is speaking on hours of God's grace and his mercy and his love to save people. But lastly, what he's most famous for, that what you probably know John Newton for, is his song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John wrote those words because he knew who he was before Christ. But when he looked at the grace of Christ, he said, that is amazing. That is amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. My hope and my prayer is that we would all do that today. That we would respond like Jonah to God's grace with repentance and allow him to use us to do far than we ever imagined. That we would respond like John did to repent and say, God, you have saved a wretch like me.
how did he save us? Through his amazing grace. Bow your heads with me. I want to speak to two, two groups of people in the room today. And we'll pray and praise the Lord through singing. The first group is those, you know who you are, who have been running from God. Jonah 1 describes your life really well. God has been stirring in your heart and your mind to pursue ministry and serving the Lord through sacrifice. And you've waited three days, three nights. You said, God, no, I don't want to do that. God has stirred your heart today. Would you not run from him, but run to him? Some of you have felt the stirring in your soul and your spirit to pursue purity. And you've continued to, to give in to that lust and that sin. And God is saying, come to me today in your mess and know that I will save you. My grace is waiting. Would you turn to him? And there's not some magical prayer that you pray. You just need to know that God hears your prayers in your mess. And maybe you pray something like John Newton did. God, help me. Would you save me? And know that when you pray that, God in his grace and his mercy will extend salvation to you and he will save you. He will give you that steadfast love that you've been looking for and longing for. And the way he does that is through his grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, who took our place when we were guilty to give us forgiveness. The innocent standing in the place of the guilty. And so pray to him now, the innocent one, Approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that forgiveness is waiting for you. And for those of us that maybe fit more of the religious side of Jonah, you know God, you would say he is my God, and yet you've been running from him. Would you stop today? You thought salvation belongs to you, and so you haven't shared it with that neighbor or that friend. Would you say salvation belongs to the Lord? I want to be faithful to share the good news of Jesus. Would you do that? Father, thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to give us a, a, a pure picture, the substance of your grace, not just a shadow. So, Lord, I ask that that grace would change us, would change us now, that we would sing in such a way that is a joyful singing, that our sacrifice would be with thanksgiving and not with duty and drudgery. Lord, help us stern our hearts to worship and to be generous to you and to live for you this week to the glory of your gracious name. And, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you that you came for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's sing with joy to the God who is with us.